Well, this is the number you can text in your questions to. That's just kind of what we do here. We haven't, we, well, we always get a lot of questions. We haven't had as many, and I think uh, Laura is too kind to say it, but it's sort of like you're being a little preachy there, Terry. You're not getting a lot of questions. So uh, we'll make this a little more conversational. Text your questions in if you'd like. So we're talking about what the a Bible has to say and a biblically informed way of thinking about a number of topics and we want to talk about politics in this series. Here's the basic recap of the first three lessons is we are in the world, we are participants in whatever society we live in. I mean, we're gonna talk about America, but I want you to keep in mind a lot of things we take for granted here, there are Christians in North Korea that, whose lives are very different. Their faith is no different, but their lives are very different. So we are participating in the societies in which we find ourselves. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We don't have the same agenda as most of the people who are not Christ followers in our society. Consequently, one of the fundamental ideas about Christians and politics or the church and politics, but specifically Christians and politics is, we are playing, this is my metaphor and I'm gonna stick with it, uh, we are playing with the same game pieces everyone else is, but we're not playing the same game. And so we are basically living our lives in the midst of this culture, but we have a different goal, we have a different purpose, we have different values, we make different decisions. And so Christians are playing a different game even though we participate amongst the rest of the culture. And that makes us inevitably, if we are indeed following Christ, it makes us subversive. And I don't mean subversive in a bad way, like, oh, we're gonna start a revolution and lock a bunch of people up. Or, you know, I'm not thinking subversive like the you know, communist revolution in Russia you know, in 1918, I'm talking subversive as in, we are just doing different things, going different directions, and more and more people are running the same direction we're running. And all of a sudden, the culture looks around and goes, whoa, wait a minute, there's somebody's doing something quietly here, <clears throat> and they're changing the culture. That's what Christians have always done in any culture in which they've been, in any government system in which they've been. Then I said to you, the statistics would tell us though that we are not influencing the culture as a church. I'm speaking very broadly now. 75% of Americans identify as Christian and yet a very small, 6% believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, more than 60% believe if you're a nice person, do good deeds, you'll go to heaven. I mean, so in other words, there's not a lot of biblical thinking going on there. I mean, those aren't biblical ideas. And so you've got 75% of America says they're Christian, then why do we have a pornography problem? Why do we have an abortion problem? Why do we have a divorce problem? Why do we have a depression problem? Well, this is not controversial, you know, duh. We apparently aren't living out authentically who we are. We are not being very subversive, are we? The culture is winning that war. We are assimilating, we with the big thing, we are assimilating to the culture rather than the culture being subverted by Christians. So we talked about that and we talked about how do we do it, how do we be subversive. Then we talked about political parties and engagement. How do Christians engage in the specifically the governmental political system in America? You don't engage in the political system in China. You don't engage in North Korea. You don't engage in the political system in Saudi Arabia, if you're a Christian, in America, you can. So how do you do it? And we talked about that a little bit. And so recapping that, I'll give you a quote from probably one of the most significant theologians in the 20th century. Stanley Hauerwas says, the challenge of Jesus is the political dilemma. This is an interesting way of looking at Christians living out their lives. The challenge of Jesus is the political dilemma, meaning, Hey, there's some tension around this of how to be faithful to a strange community which is shaped by a story of how God is with us. That's theologian talk for basically, how do we live out a Christ-like life? Uh, Ephesians 4.1, live in a manner worthy of your calling. 
uh, Romans 8, 29, you were destined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We literally are following Jesus. We literally want to be like Jesus. The Spirit is conforming us to the very image of Christ, making us holy, making us sanctified, all those theological ideas. So what a theologian says is basically, we have this political dilemma, how to be faithful to that calling and that way of living in a world that isn't going the same direction that we are going. That makes sense. And here's his prescription for what's happened here. He says, we challenge the assumption so prevalent at least since Constantine. Constantine was emperor of Rome, 308, basically 300 AD. And he is the one who made Christianity okay to be Christian. The persecution, the killing, the confiscation of your home and property stopped with Constantine. And after that, he sort of co-opted the church. And that's another story for another time, but it's really interesting. We ought to talk about that sometime. But we challenge the assumption that the church is judged politically by how well or how ill the church's presence in the world works to the advantage of the world. Here's the dilemma for Christians when you get into politics. It's like, I want to follow Christ. I want to be like Christ. I'm not playing the same game. So how then do I engage in this political system? Christians have taken two basic approaches right now. I'm just going to talk about now. First approach is, well, we think that if the world were run by Christian principles, people would be better off. That's true. People would indeed be better off because God knows how we're wired and if you do things in a godly way, good things happen. And so they said, then we should become political and we should play the political game and we should try to fix the world by getting our candidates in by playing the political game. In other words, let's immerse ourselves into the world's system and play the game the way the world wants to play the game and let's win. In other words, let's win, meaning not that we get rich or anything, but that we control how things are done in the United States with good intentions because that will be better and people will thrive. So that's one way, is becoming very much a partisan player in the political game. Remember I said Christians are political, but in my view, we're not called to be partisan. But one way Christians do it is said, look, I'm gonna have to pick a side here. And one party out of our two-party system, I showed you, we got a lot of parties, but we got two big parties. One party matches up, in this person's opinion, this hypothetical person, way better with what I want. Not everything, but way better, so I'm gonna become a partisan member of that party, and I'm going to try to get people in that will do things the way we want, and the world will be better, okay? That's one approach. Second approach that people use today is, that is a messy business. I don't like either one of the parties. Yes, I like one better than the other, but neither one of them really represents Christian thinking. So I'll tell you what, I'm not gonna play that game. I'm not even gonna watch that game. I'm gonna go work on social justice. I'm going to go be an advocate outside the political system, and I'm gonna become a so, what we call social justice warrior, if you've ever seen that. Uh, that's just kind of a term that's used, and some of those those folks who think that way are Christians who say, I wanna make the world a better place and I'm gonna go demonstrate, I'm gonna go do what I can, I'm gonna help people. Once again, also very well-intentioned, meaning let's go right some wrongs, let's go make sure justice gets done. So the, the problem with the first approach, in my view, is when you become a partisan player, you have to play the game that the world is playing and it seems to me the Bible calls us very distinctly to play a little different game. It's too easy to get wrapped up into success or failure to enact the laws that you want to coerce everybody else to act like Christians. I, I am not sanguine about that being a biblically fruitful way to move forward. That's, that's my opinion. The other side though, is you end up with people who present the gospel to the world not as a matter of we all have a terminal illness called sin 
and God has made a way to heal us. We can be saved. We can follow Christ, that this life is not all there is. You really can be reconciled with Christ. And that gospel, the world sees it though as, we wanna make the world a better place and we wanna do the right thing for people. They see a social gospel and lose sight of the other. And Christians become, I don't know who coined this phrase, but it's really clever and it's really true. The world can then look at Christians and say, those are really nice people who are socially useful. That's not bad. Being socially useful isn't bad. Crossing Community Church, again, I'm not bragging on us, I'm just gonna use this as an obvious example. We have a clinic gives health care to anybody and everybody. Who, anybody that doesn't have insurance can get health care there. We have a community center and we work with all kinds of people for all kinds of things there. We have a school and we have all kinds of ministries to help a lot of people and we do good to make people's temporal lives a little better. That's a good thing, but that's not the gospel. That is a good thing, don't hear me wrong. And we will do those things, but if that's all we do, we are nice people who are socially useful. We do more than that. And so I think that those two ways of solving this, this tension, this dilemma, is to either opt out and make the gospel about making my society better or opt in and try to win the game and make my society better. Howard Wass identifies the difficulty. What does it look like to enter the political world and play a different game? And so that's what we have been talking about and we will continue that discussion. But first, question. Yes. So you have talked about the political parties and I have a couple questions about that. Is it better to identify as a conservative or a liberal or a progressive instead of as a member of a party? That's a good question. And let me think of how to give you a short answer to this. So in our, in America, we're just talking about the United States now. So you have political parties who, and, and last time, I just wanna go ahead and apologize to the marijuana party, because I know I was hard on you guys last time. It just hit my funny bone that there was a, a marijuana party, and I just, sorry, it just tickled me uh, last week. But bottom line, you got a lot of parties. Then you also have an ideology of how a nation should be run. We have several prominent ideologies. One, we lump under the idea of conservatism, roughly, roughly defined as limited government, fiscal responsibility. Whoa, do we have that anymore? I don't even think that's a thing anymore. It's limited government, fiscal responsibility, individual rights, local control more than federal control, et cetera, et cetera. These things roughly are conservatives. Liberals, which both of these philosophies have a lot to be said for them. Liberals, basically a classical liberal says more government control to take care of those marginalized in society. It also traditionally, liberals believe in individual rights that the government can't broach, et cetera, but they tend to be probably more focused on social programs rather than market-based solutions that the conservatives have. Then of course you have some, they're not fringe, but they're just lesser known kinds of things. Those things overlap the political parties. In other words, what you see today in, let me just talk about the Democratic Party is really easy to talk about in this because Democratic Party has some classic liberals in it and it has a significant socialist wing to it, which is not classic liberalism. It is much more authoritarian system economically, and, and I'm just describing it. I'm not telling you anything controversial here. So parties and ideologies are a little bit different. In the Republicans are the same way. You have some classical conservatives, and then you have a, a, what they call a far right wing that is far harsher uh, form of conservatism. So there, the ideologies overlap a little. So what should we identify as? My suggestion to you was is that we obviously, we do have a party, it's called Christianity. We 
do have a candidate. He's called Jesus Christ. And we do have a platform. It's called biblical beliefs about what is true and just and right and beautiful, right? And we want to be pursuing those things. Now, when you vote in America, you got to write something down. Fine, write something down. But politically, uh, I think you would be better off talking political ideologies, but don't be afraid to depart. And you don't have to fit into a box. The only box you have to fit into is the one that Jesus Christ says, follow me and be like me. You don't have to fit into a conservative box. You don't have to fit into a liberal box. Feel free to not fit in. That's the whole point of being subversive, is we follow Jesus Christ, and nobody's managed to put him in a nice little box. Not the Republican box, not the Democrat box, not the liberal box, not the conservative box. I'm not telling you he, he may fit in some of those boxes better than others. I'm anticipating a question here. He may fit in some of those boxes better than others, but no, no box contains Jesus Christ and consequently doesn't contain us. Okay, so last Wednesday I read a question and you answered it about one, that the person said one political party had about 75% of their platform that a Christian could support, and the other one had a very small percentage. And this person tonight says, I don't see anything inherently Christian in either. If by Christian you mean love God, our fellow man and woman, and believe in Christ and follow the Great Commission, then I don't see that in anyone's platform. Platforms deal with political, civil, and government ideas and processes that a person, whether religious or not, could support abortion, sexuality, and perhaps support for Israel might be, quote, Christian issues, but they're a really small part. So that's the comment. And I got another question just now saying, how does a Christian support a party, an ideology, or a candidate who, su who supports things that violate Christian ethics? Yeah. Let me be really succinct and clear because I think I was too wordy on the other. So I'll just cut right to the chase. You do not have to belong to a temporal, secular, political party. Writing down something so you can go vote, I mean, that's just the way it works, that's the way the system works, that's fine. Uh, you don't have to belong to a party. It's okay, don't. You don't have to completely agree with the political, if somebody says, what's your political ideology? You don't actually have to answer. It's like, whoa, my gosh, what are my choices? Well, you can be conservative or liberal or you can be crazy. Well, let's see, what can I do? You, you don't have to, you just don't. And we don't, we don't fit in any of those categories. Now, if you say, I, I identify more with this, I identify more with that, I wanna work on this, that's fine. My point is, you do not have to be a, part, a member of a political party, you do not have to fit in a box with a conservative. What you do is, and we need to say this more is, oh, I'm a Christ follower and so, I think this is good for people. I think this is good for people. And I think we should just be Christians. I know that sounds a little naive, but I don't want you to think that you have to fit in. You do not have to play the game. You have to live in the world, but you do not have to play the game. And so don't feel any compunction to pick up political philosophy. I think the last two things that, I was, that I've received are people who are concerned on both sides of this issue. One of them saying, I don't see any of these things as being necessarily Christian, and the other one saying, I can give you several examples of things that I believe violate Christian ethics. Mm -hmm. You know, abortion, being compelled to perform an abortion, other kinds of things, I have some examples here. And so, that's really the question is. What, what is the question then, where, I'm sorry. Where, where do you come down on that, on supporting a party, a person, an ideology? Are there things out there that are inconsistent with Christian morality? Oh, the better question is, are there any parties or ideologies out there that are completely consistent with Christian ideology? And the answer is no. So there are not. Are there some parties that in some issues, like I told you, every party will have something that you agree with. I don't know about the marijuana party, but the rest of them might have something, you, ah, man, I did it again. I am so sorry about that. But no, seriously, I agree with that. And that's why I say, you do not have to opt into that game. There may not be a party that is biblically informed. And it's like, okay, you're your own people. You're your own agent. You're your own actor. You don't have to be part of a political party. Okay, new subject. Um, the Christians in Acts 4 were, what is the difference between what they were practicing and socialism as a form of government? 
Oh, man, I really like this question. <laughs> you know, because socialism is a great example of what's called historical amnesia. And that is, if you don't know what's been done in the past, you're thinking, this time, we have a socialism that will be different. Uh, so, good question. Acts chapter four, what the questioner is asking is a really good point, and that is, in Acts chapter four, you see Christians caring for one another as though they were a family. That's literally what you see because that's how they understood themselves. We have been adopted to be sons and daughters of God. We have been brought into God's family. Part of being saved is not just I might reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus Christ and my trust in him. I'm not just reconciled. It's like, oh my gosh, I get to be in the family. I'm not just in the family business, I'm in the will. Oh my goodness, I have an inheritance in heaven. It's awesome, I mean, it's amazing. So they lived like that. And so if your brother or sister, okay, this is a bad example. I know some of you have deadbeat brothers or sisters, okay, but here's my point. If a family member needs something, you step up and help them, right? That's the way the Christians lived. The questioner is saying, as a system, which it wasn't a political system, it wasn't a governmental organization, they didn't have a constitution, they didn't have a charter, they didn't even have a homeowners association agreement. They are just living out the Christian life and you are my brothers and sisters, right? And they acted like that. I mean, like they really believed that and they lived it out. Socialism is a system of government and an economic system, mostly an economic system, but it, it also encompasses a way of governing, an authoritarian way of governing, by definition. Because what socialism does is it basically takes the means of production, I'm gonna paint with a broad brush here, and nationalizes it. So the assets of your nation, I'm not speaking precisely here, but you'll get my idea. The assets of your nation are not benefiting just a few, they are going to be redistributed to people. So instead of the capital, capitalist system where capital goes places, people invest, take risk, reach rewards, we remove the risk because the government owns everything and everybody shares in the rewards. That's the idea of socialism. That's the theoretical form. Has that ever happened? No. Will it ever happen? No, it can't it will inevitably become a rather authoritarian system where you have the rule of the elites. And so the difference, the basic difference is, other than the fact that Christianity works and socialism doesn't, and I'm not hot about that, I'm just telling you the truth, there's, there's no historical case where that has worked out well for people. Christianity is not a system of government, it's a family. Socialism is a coercive system of government. No one made any of those Christians give any more money than they wished. Does that make sense? You as Christians, we talk about tithing, giving 10%. If you don't give 10%, do we kick you out? You don't give 10%, do we shame you? It's not a requirement. What does God, what does Paul say? In 2 Corinthians, he said, each one should give according to what's been laid on his heart. Give according to your ability to give. How much, Paul? Well, well, don't know. What is, what's the need? You understand what I'm saying? It's a very different kind of thing. It's not coercive. It's heart transformation. Socialism is governmental and it's coercive. So that's basically the difference. Christianity's not a governmental system. We don't have a constitution. We simply have an example his name is Jesus Christ, and we want to be like him. It is unbelievably powerful if we would do that. Question? So are you saying that what is practiced in Acts 4 is different because they're not giving their resources to the government? Well, I'm actually saying even more than that. I'm, I'm not only saying Acts 4 is different because they're not giving their resources to a government, Actually, no one's taking their resources. Governments take things. Do you understand what I'm saying? On April 15th, do you say, hi, IRS, I felt like $500 should about cover it this year. <laughs> Governments are coercive. 
And I'm not trying to say that anything coercive is bad. There is such a thing as a social contract. Sorry, I'm trying to keep this kind of narrow. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but governments are coercive. Christianity is not coercive. No one is making you give anything. No one certainly is taking anything from you. Does that make sense? Christianity is radically different from a form of government at all. So good questions. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about this fourth question. What is the difference between a legitimate and illegitimate government? And what is our posture towards illegitimate governments? Just felt like Taliban being in the news, this would be a good thing to talk about. Is that a legitimate or an illegitimate government? Let's see what the Bible says. First of all, governments serve a purpose. Lee Kuan Yew, you may or may not know him, but Lee Kuan Yew, really amazing guy. Singapore, it's a city and an island. And from 1965 till now, in 1965, Singapore was like, they were either gonna get invaded or they were all gonna starve to death. And Lee Kuan Yew took it over, and it is an unbelievable story. They are now really a thriving uh, city, nation kind of a thing. But the point is, government really made a difference. And the point is, governments make a difference. There are good governments, there are bad governments. There are legitimate and illegitimate. He said, we cannot afford to forget, and sometimes we forget this in America because we are very, very fortunate to be Americans. We cannot afford to forget that public order, personal security, economic and social progress and prosperity are not the natural order of things. They have been in your and my life because we are fortunate enough to be born into the greatest nation, in my view, in history. That's, that's my opinion, just as a, as a student of history. But that these things depend on ceaseless effort and attention from an honest and effective government, in his view, that the people must elect. Government matters, and government is endorsed by God. So here's our text. A number of texts in the New Testament, but I just want to keep this relatively brief. So here is uh, our text, Romans 13. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll come back to that. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers... Now, this is the definition of legitimate government. What you're about to hear is Paul explain what a ruler or government does. And you're gonna go, but Terry, they don't all do this. I know. This is what a legitimate government looks like. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive approval. So a legitimate government gives approval for what is good. A government is God's servant for your good, your thriving. Exactly what Lee Kuan Yew said. Progress, prosperity, safety, security, uh, opportunity. Uh, basically, a government that does those things is your servant to help you to prosper, meaning just have a quality of life. But if you do wrong, you should be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. At least understand this is that government has the authority to be coercive. It has the authority to punish evildoers. For government is the servant of God who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Justice. Governments provide justice. Therefore, God's justice. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. That's the reason you pay taxes. It's the reason that you honor, because the authorities are ministers of God. What this basically said is God has instituted government. It does not say that God has condoned all governments. The description here is what kind of government does God condone? One that is God's servant for your good, one that helps put things together that delivers justice, gives you an opportunity, an equal opportunity to have a good life with your family and a home and a job. And the government can be a very useful and God-honoring institution if indeed the government does that. This is what a legitimate government looks like. You immediately are gonna say, well, there are illegitimate governments. This is talking about your action as a Christian toward a legitimate government. 
This is what God condones. But God uses all kinds of governments. And so I thought you'd be interested to see, this is a little misleading. This is a map of the different kinds of governments in the world today. It's not entirely accurate. I'll give you one reason is I think the United States is a presidential republic, meaning we are a republican system of government and we have a president. I believe they classify North Korea that way. And I suppose that's technically true. Um, but gosh, it's just awful funny how Kim Jong-un continues to win. Anyway, bottom line is that there are different kinds of government. You will tend to see monarchies at times. So that's a constitutional monarchy in England. You're going to see more authoritarian systems. This is a communist country. They actually think Russia right now is a presidential republic. That's interesting. There are different kinds of ways to be authoritarian. So, but there are a lot of ways people have come up with to help sort out their affairs. Some of them have been legitimate governments. Some of them have not been legitimate governments. The authoritarian or totalitarian ways of government. Authoritarian meaning all the power in society resides in a person uh, or a small group of people who have a great deal of control over their citizens. And totalitarian means total control over their people. A totalitarian government could be like North Korea, which does indeed have a ruling body that lords it over them, or it could be uh, an emperor, Caesar in Rome was totalitarian, he had complete authority and control. You also have uh, parliamentary or republican forms of government. These forms of government, in my view, historically have been more successful by and large because they recognize people are depraved. The founders of republican and parliamentary governments realized if you give anybody enough power, they will abuse it. So we're gonna set up a system that pits all these evil little people against each other, and so it's a checks and balances. You're familiar with that as Americans because our system is set up. It's a Republican form of government where not too much power is concentrated in any one place. Smart, they realized human beings, they're not born good. We don't always do good things, so let's get a system. And so parliamentary systems just tend to be a little more raucous they just have a lot more parties, but they're fundamentally founded on the same thing. And so basically, uh, different, the different kinds of governments are trying to solve these problems, how to distribute power very well. Probably the worst, in my view, the worst two forms of government are totalitarian. I mean, you theoretically could have a very God-honoring, very legitimate government that was totalitarian. You just need the right person running it. Anybody remember anybody like that? No, I don't either. And so that's, that's why they're really bad. The other really bad is democracy. We're not a democracy, so I'm not trashing the United States. A pure democracy, meaning you just vote and you do what the majority says. That's not what we do. We're a representative form of government. We're Republican, which sort of evens out the democracy. Anybody that thinks democracy is a, a pure democracy is a good idea should read Thucydides, the Peloponnesian War, 400 BC, unbelievable. As bad as any totalitarian government. I think that our form of government balances this out pretty well and does a pretty good job. But there are a lot of different forms of government. And here's what I wanna point out. There are Christians who are living out a life that looks like Christ in every one of those governments. And if you went to North Korea today, you can still be a Christian, you can still be authentically following Christ. There are a lot of things you couldn't do, but you can still follow Christ. Now they might kill you. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you, you may get killed sooner than you would here, but you can still be faithful. So, there are illegitimate governments. Here's the point I wanna make about illegitimate rulers. I'm gonna give you just a few quick examples from history. This is biblical history now because we're gonna talk about how the Bible does this, is the fundamental premise is this, is that even illegitimate governments serve God's purpose. They just don't do it willingly. 
God does not endorse illegitimate governments. He doesn't say, I know Hitler's gonna kill six million Jews, but hey, he's my man, he's my candidate. That's not what God says. God endorses governments that reward the good, punish the evil, and are your servant to help your life thrive. And we go, well, Hitler was not that. I know, there are a lot of governments like that. The point I wanna make is, is that even those governments bend to God's purpose. It's not just, oh my gosh, we have an illegitimate government, we're gonna suffer them, we're gonna die, and life is over. It's like, no, even that serves God's purpose. And this is part of why the Old Testament is there. 722 BC, the Assyrians, biggest, baddest players on the block, nastier than anybody you know in living memory. Unbelievably brutal and nasty people. So God has been warning Israel, this is the northern half of the Israelite people. They're split in two, Israel and Judah. And he keeps saying to them, I will bring judgment on you for violating our covenant and you're doing horrible things to each other. And so listen to what this says. So Assyria, as a matter of historical record, Assyria invades Israel, carries off the people in 722 BC. Why did they do that? Because Sennacherib, their king, decided he wanted to conquer Israel. Why does the Bible say that happened? The Lord will bring on you and on your people the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for Assyria and they will come and for Egypt and they will come and they, they're conquering you because they chose to do evil. But God will use that to move the Jewish people forward and they get judged and they get returned and their faith is stronger. In other words, my point is, is that God uses even illegitimate governments. Uh, after the Assyrians, what happens to the Assyrians? He said, he's saying, wow, you serve God's purpose. That means he must like you. No, he destroyed them completely. Guys named the Babylonians. They're nasty, not as nasty as the Assyrians, but they come along. And so Judah now, Israel's gone. That's the lost 10 tribes of Israel, by the way. That's when they got lost. Uh, they all got deported in 722, have no idea where they are, a refugee camp somewhere. And so Babylon is going to invade Judah. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar, their king, decided, I'm gonna invade Judah. But why does the Bible say that happened? Because God had been warning Judah for a long time that you will receive a judgment for what you're doing. And God used Nebuchadnezzar to do it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't know he was being used by God. My point is, God is sovereign enough that even illegitimate governments serve his purposes. I'm not telling you they're good. I'm not telling you God's happy they're around. I'm just telling you that God will bend everything to his purpose. That should be incredibly encouraging to you. Jeremiah says this about Babylon. This is right before they show up. By the way, have you guys ever heard uh, Jeremiah 19.11? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. It's on coffee cups everywhere, on Christian coffee cups. Oh my gosh, the Lord says to me, I know the plans I have for you. Well, less than one chapter later, he, he also says this. This is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of their enemies. I will hand all Judah over to the king of Babylon who will carry them away to Babylon or kill them all. I have not found a coffee cup <laughs> at Mardell's with that verse on it yet. I just can't find that one. But that's indeed what happens. As a matter of fact, beautiful little book of Habakkuk. You should go home and read it now that you know who this guy is. Habakkuk is a preacher right before Babylon comes. Now, they've been preaching to the Jews saying, turn back to God, repent. You know, just what John the Baptist and Jesus were saying in his time, repent, turn back to God. Well, they didn't. Habakkuk looks around though and he says, I, you gotta be kidding me, look at these Jews. And he complains to God the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received, how long, O Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Who does he want help from? His fellow Jews, what are they doing? Oh, I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate all this wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict. The law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous. He's talking about Jews. And he says, we need to judge this. We need to turn this around. And God says, you are so right. He says, watch and see. 
and be utterly amazed. I'm about to do something in your days. You wouldn't believe this even if I told you. I'm gonna bring the Babylonians to town. And Habakkuk then goes on and says, never mind that prayer. He says, forget my complaint. But my point to you is God answers prayers in some interesting ways, doesn't he? Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't think that he was doing God's business, but he was. And you need to think about that a little bit. Because my point there is not that the Babylonians were good or what happened was good. My point is that whether you're in North Korea or America, and whether the government wants to or not, everything bends to God's will. God is sovereign, and that's what it means for God to be sovereign. It doesn't mean that God micromanages everything, and every time you stand too long in the line at the DMV, God smites you know, something here. And that's not the way it works. Like, oh my gosh, can you believe what our president did? Lord, smite him, and let's just move on with somebody else. You know, that's not the way God works. But no matter what that government's trying to do, first of all, that government and the rulers will be judged very harshly if they don't do what they've been charged to do in Romans 13. But secondly, no matter how badly they try to do evil, God can make it for good. That is Romans 8.28. It's not just true in your personal life, it's true in the national life. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's talking about those who are Christ followers. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, you'll always be treated fairly. Oh, by the way, you won't get unjustly imprisoned. I mean, anybody that knows any history of the Christian church, how could you honestly say that? And God doesn't say that. He just said, trust me, no matter how powerful Nebuchadnezzar looks, no matter how powerful Kim Jong-un looks, no matter how powerful Xi Jinping looks, they're dancing to my tune. In other words, this will indeed work out for good. God's sovereignty over legitimate and illegitimate rulers is a powerful biblical idea. That's why, back to the first set of questions now, I wanna reframe it. The idea of what party do I need to be in? And oh my gosh, so-and-so got elected and it's gonna be the end of the world. And the so-and-so could be whatever party. You know, there's somebody saying that at any given time, right? Every election displeases somebody. Actually, it displeases half the somebodies in our country. And so my point there is, is if you understand God's sovereignty, does that matter for justice and injustice and how people's lives will go? Yes. Does it thwart the will of God? It cannot. Does it keep you from spending eternity with God in heaven? It cannot. And here's something even more powerful. Can it stop the growth of the church? And what I mean by that is people one by one dedicating their lives to Christ and saying, I'm gonna go a different direction, I'm gonna follow him with you. No, it can't. And that's the one that you should have the hardest time believing, and it's true. I've told you before, the church is growing faster in China than it is in America. That's crazy. No, it's really not, because God is sovereign and the gospel is powerful to transform hearts. And you don't have to get rid of whoever's running for that to happen. Do we want to have legitimate governments? Of course we do. And if we can influence that, we'll influence it. But that's not our main mission. We can be about our mission no matter who is ruling the country. In America, you get to vote. So vote for the best candidate that you can that will do the best that they can, but don't get wrapped around the axle because none of those candidates are gonna be doing exactly what you're doing. None of those candidates are walking, they're not all, and none of them are playing the same game that you're playing. Nevertheless, do what you can, make things a little bit better. But at the end of the day, we can be about our business wherever we are. And that's been true. The church has grown fastest, historically speaking, under the greatest persecution. That doesn't make sense. From a secular point of view, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, think about this. Hey, would you like to be a Christian? Uh, it means that you have to meet in secret. If somebody finds out, you'll lose your job. This, this is the way it is today, not just historically. Oh, they could confiscate your house. Oh, and by the way, uh, if you're in the Roman Empire, they'll cut your head off. If you happen to live in a really, uh, let's say you happen to live in, oh, let's say the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, they will probably kill you, right? Why would anybody say yes to that? And yet, 
people do. You know why? Because the gospel is true and we have a need, we have a God-shaped hole, as Pascal said. We have a need to be reconciled to God that is more important than this life. Do not undersell the gospel. Don't cheapen it by making it only about social issues. Our Christian, please don't hear what I'm not saying. Are Christians involved in social issues? Of course we are. We, we need to be as a consequence of our mission, as a consequence of who we are. But don't underestimate the power of the gospel to change hearts, and that's what really changes things. So I think it's interesting to kind of stroll through history a little bit and see, and of course the Persians ate the, there's always a bigger fish. Uh, Persians came along, destroyed the Babylonians, and guess what happened to all those Jews? They went home rebuilt an even better temple, and were way more faithful to God. Everything bends to God's purpose. That's the one thing you can be sure of. So the point about this is legitimate and illegitimate governments is simply this. Legitimate governments is something that we should advocate for because that God instituted authority, he endorses legitimate governments. Does he endorse illegitimate governments? No, but will he use it? Yes, he will, because there is no sovereignty in any of the governments here. It just looks like they're sovereign. As Jesus said, don't fear the one who can take your life and then can't do anything else to you. If you wanna be afraid of someone, be afraid of the one who holds eternity in his hands. And so that's what God's saying. If we believe that this life is what matters most, that is the definition of not being Christian. That sounds judgmental, doesn't it? Let me reframe it this way. As a matter of fact, that's a definition of not being a Christ follower. Jesus Christ completely disagrees with the idea that what happens to you in this life is the most important thing. Does he care? Yes, desperately so. So much so he came and died on a cross for you. But did he say, hey, by the way, I'll make everything work out for 70, 80, 100 years, whatever. No, he just said, this is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Our Christian lives, they're, they're battles with the political dilemma of how to be faithful in an unfaithful world. And the answer to that is, trust God's sovereignty, go preach the gospel. You know, and act the way Jesus would act. Summary. So what I really wanna say, this is really interesting, a little off topic, but you'll get my point. This is a map, I gotta show you one really interesting thing on this. This is a map of elections You'll see 1960, you'll see 16, sorry, got off the slide there. And then I couldn't find quite as good a map for 20. So first thing you notice, blues and reds. Isn't it interesting how it ebbs and flows, right, of the, our major two-party system? The book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. Everything ebbs and flows. If right now you feel like, oh my gosh, the world's going to hell, all, all the states are turning, pick your color, blue, red, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. Wait, just wait a little while because those colors ebb and flow. That is historically true. The other thing I wanna show you is look at this. Back in 1960, in this election, I just want you to see, look at the difference in those two numbers in the popular vote. Tiny, isn't it? T90. That's about the same as it has been in, oh, a bunch of recent elections. So I simply wanna make this point. I want you to get a little above the fray. Right now we think, oh my gosh, the country is split on a razor's edge. You know, we've got just a little bit of a majority for fill in the blank. Uh, Trump in 16, Biden in 20, does, doesn't make any difference to me. I just gotta go back 60 years. It was the same way then. The country was split like that. And so I just want you to relax a little bit. Not because, oh, it's all gonna turn out great. Oh, it does if you're a Christ follower. But my point is, this is normal. This is the way the political game is played. Sometimes it goes one way, sometimes it goes the other. Sometimes you have a lot of blue, sometimes you have a lot of red. That historically is the way things go. Getting caught up in that game and playing that game is, it's a cyclical game. 
Just step out of it and find a little truer north path, which is following Christ. You, can, you will see the church can thrive in any one of those three. Church can thrive with a landslide majority. Turns out Kim Jong-un got a landslide minor, a majority the last time he ran in North Korea. Or it can survive in a razor's edge of difference of opinion in a very partisan environment. That makes sense? So the point about governments being legitimate or illegitimate, it matters and God cares about that. But you and I can carry out our mission regardless. So what I'd like to do next is we've talked about we're playing a different game, we're playing it a different way. We don't fit in any of the categories that that game has. We don't fit in the, entirely in the Republican box or the Democratic box or the Marijuana Party box. Uh, we don't fit nicely. We don't even fit exactly in the conservative box or the liberal box or the socialist box or any of those boxes. We certainly don't fit in the white supremacist or, you know, whatever box. I mean, there are boxes. We just don't fit perfectly in any of those boxes. We are by nature, as we follow Christ, subversive. And what I really want to talk about now is what does it look like to live a subversive life? So far, what we've talked about is what is our relationship to this game called politics in America? We would have the same answer to our relationship in this game called politics in Russia or in Canada or in anywhere else. And our answer is, uh, it's not really our game. Uh, we're going to move the pieces because we do live in this society, but we actually have different aims. We have different goals. We have different values. We make different decisions. We actually know exactly where we're going. And so the thing I'd like to get to is we've kind of at least explored the relationship to the institution. Now I'd like to talk about, okay, what does this look like day in and day out? What do we actually do that is so subversive? That's gonna be an interesting study in practical Monday through Friday, everyday living. What do we do that is by nature subversive? There's some things you take for granted that you do that basically are undercutting the American political system. You are subversives. So that's what we're gonna talk about next time. What does it look like to live a subversive life? So if you wanna fit in to the culture, better do it this week, because starting next week, you won't fit in anymore. I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>